Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think I hear something on my roof. <laughs> what? Something just fell down my chimney, which is weird because it's a gas fireplace. <laughs> What, oh, look at this. It's a bag full of mail. Coming a few days late from that jolly fat man, I think. <laughs> Should we open up and see what we have here from our listeners this for this very rude. special mailbag edition? There's, yeah, still, they're, there's still jingle bells for some reason. <laughs> I think they're parked up there. How did you get your wife to participate in this or marry oh, you. she's she's taking it up <laughs> hello everyone and welcome to rational security 2.0 aka it's a wonderful reason because this is not a sequel episode this is a brand new production a new annual tradition of the rational security 2.0 crew this is our potentially annual or maybe just one time we'll find out soon mailbag edition where we are going to take the episode to look through some of the items that you the listeners have sent to us both questions and topics to discuss and object lessons i am of course here with my co-hosts quinta jurassic hello and alan rosenstein hello hello and we are incredibly excited to get started with this the miracle in massachusetts avenue edition a tribute to our offices, which we haven't seen the inside of in quite a while now at this point. Hello, uh, but nonetheless, when I get there, I will take this pile of digital mail we've received from you and pour it out in dramatic fashion uh, as we sift through it and dig into some of these topics and object lessons you've sent to us. So why don't we just go ahead and get started with this very special episode? The first question comes to us from listener Lior Tepper. And apologies for mispronouncing your name, Lior, who asks us if you could do only one paid subscription to a U.S. or other newspaper, which one would it be and why? And she says it does not include websites, patrons, or Substack, so specifically a publication. So I, this is not in any way original, I still think that Bang for Buck, The Economist, is the best You newspaper. stole mine, Alan. Damn I think it. it's I think it's the Economist. It's it's a newspaper. It's not a magazine. It's very obviously a newspaper. It bills itself as a newspaper. Provides the same kind of comprehensive service as a newspaper. It's weekly, which I think is actually the right cadence for learning about the news. None of us really need to know what's happening on a day to day schedule. And if we do, there's always Twitter that has its own pathologies. And I like that it's not U.S. It's like technically, I mean, it's British. But it has this more of a kind of a general international flavor to it. So I, I think I think the uh, the Economist. I'm going to second that for all the same reasons. I'm not going to lie, and I think it's a good compliment if you are like a in a media deluge day to day. If you're on Twitter or like trying to keep up with headlines, which I feel like we are all to some extent who work for lawfare and in the kind of media media ecosystem, 
it at least makes you because it's weekly and because it is kind of foreign and takes a little bit of a more distance perspective. It forces you to deal with stories at kind of a different level um, that I appreciate. Downside, really stupid expensive, which is extremely annoying. And every time they talk to me for an article, they never quote me, which is annoying economists. But other than that, that's fine. I still I still subscribe. So I, I second the economist endorsement. I'm going to be really boring here and say the New York Times. And the reason why uh, I said no, 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 uh, no, is because Lior, Lior indicated that he's writing to us from Israel and was asking one paid subscription to a U.S. or other newspaper. And I do think that the Gray Lady is just a very strange institution in many ways, but it really is the pinnacle of news reporting in the United States for a good reason. So if you are looking to get a sense of American pathologies from outside the United States, you cannot go wrong for many reasons. Um, if I want to if I want to throw a curveball, I will also say the LA Times is doing really incredible work. They were in kind of a rut in a bad way in terms of not having any money, also in terms of not being willing to negotiate with the union of employees, but they've really turned around. They do have a paywall, which is why it is worth subscribing. And they've just been producing like really impressive reporting, not only about what's going on in the West, which I think is is a useful perspective to have given that U.S. media is very, very East Coast heavy, but across the country. I mean, their disaster reporting has been really good. Their immigration reporting has been really good. So consider this a plug for the LA Times. I do want to say, though, I, I mean, Lior's question excluded specifically web, websites, patrons, and substacks, but I actually do think that that is worth subscribing to. I, I I mean, I don't know if like Substack, Qua Substack is the future, right? It has its own issues, but I do think the independent newsletter or the quasi-independent newsletter is, is hugely important actually. And one of the more impactful things that one can do with one's dollars in the sense of trying to support people. You know, I think in terms of investing in viewpoints that you want to see more of, I do think that the $5 a month that, you know, your average Substack costs is a much bigger contribution even than subscribing to newspapers, which one should also do. Alan, that's insane. That's absolutely really? insane. <laughs> Real? I Okay, let's pr- bring it on, guys. Guys, it's a big old sack of mail. We may have to save this one for a later, <laughs> later full discussion on episode because I cannot disagree more strongly. Subscribe to your local Alan newspaper said. instead. Local news is dying. Thank you. I, yes, I do subscribe. No, exactly. no, 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 no. It's both. I do subscribe to no, my I'm local No, I'm telling newspaper. our listeners. I, 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 I am a proud subscriber of the fantastic Minnesota Star Tribune. But I but I think like people are gonna groan. But I think like Matt Iglesias is doing some of the best oh analysis these days. And like I think I want more of that, so I'm gonna pay him for it. And I think that's actually really important. And and like a a, a way that I can make a bigger difference in the media environment, even then by subscribing to uh, a newspaper. I will just say pay at pay for editors, people. They matter and they make a difference. And you see that when you read Substack posts. And maybe pay for news that everyone can read, not just you can read. That's my that's my beef. All right, let's go on to topic two. Alan, I think you've got this one. Yes, yes. So this is also from Lior. This is, I'm reading the question. Considering the fact that Israelis are in a trend of becoming more religious, racist, and extreme, what do you think will be the U.S. response if gradually the already minimal rights of the Palestinians will deteriorate further and the two countries' solution will be impossible to achieve? So some, some factual assumptions there, but we can take them to be true for purposes of this question. Um, Scott, what do you think? 
Yeah, I don't want to co-sign all of those descriptors, but uh, what I, you know, what I will say is that we've definitely seen a drift towards a kind of nationalist idea, definitely a religious national like identity playing a stronger role in Israeli politics the last few years. Even now with this move away from Netanyahu, you know, there still is that very strong strain in Israeli politics that's going to be moving forward. It kind of has been really for the last several decades. What's interesting is that particularly during the Netanyahu years, in part because of the really, really close relationship Netanyahu and Trump openly had with each other and openly courted each other with for their own domestic political reasons, you actually saw the U.S. kind of strong line of support for Israel begin to take on a different hue in ways, particularly the Democratic Party, right? For the first time, we saw this last cycle, a Democratic Party platform that expressly expressed support for Israel, but also talked about the need to push for a two-state solution and the need to account for a variety of human rights issues and other issues that fit into the space. So, you know, I do think if you see a lot of massive decline in this area, if Israel really moves away from the idea that it either has to move towards a two-state solution or begin to provide a more substantial bucket of rights to Palestinians that live within territory it effectively controls in the long run as a permanent solution, I think that's going to be a bitter pill for a lot of Democrats in particular to swallow. Uh, not all Democrats, because some Democrats, I think, are, are going to be strong supporters of Israel no matter what and, and have been for a long time. But it's part of the party platform. It's part of the new left that's particularly active in foreign affairs in the Democratic Party. It's very real. And there's popular support for it. Like Americans actually have a lot of trouble with those sorts of policy positions that certain elements of Israeli domestic politics get into. The thing is, though, is that that's all the reason why I think you're going to see more and more drifts towards kind of what we've seen in the last several decades, which is an endless two-state solution process that never really has a clear endpoint. Because as long as that process is ongoing, it creates a kind of narrative that serves a lot of political interests, both the, for domestic parties in the United States or Israeli parties in Israel, frankly, for Palestinian leadership as well. Um, and that's part of the reason you've seen that status quo kind of prove so sticky for the last several decades, despite even, you know, Trump was the biggest disruption to that. So, you know, I think it would take a lot to push um, the United States to, to really begin to a strong response. But there's going to be this political pressure domestically around this issue that I think that's a new part of our political terrain that's not going away. And that's going to change the U.S.-Israeli dynamic. All right, Quinta, I have a question for you now. This is from uh, David Tetrick who asks an extended question, which I'm going to paraphrase and borrow the hub from here, I think. Given how Mark Meadows decided to stop cooperating with the January 6th committee once Trump made public his disapproval of that committee's activities, how is Trump not guilty of witness tampering? So this is a fun little question that actually sent me on a, a bit of a, a walk down memory lane, so to speak, because uh, back in the days of the Mueller investigation, when Trump was tweeting out his displeasure at various individuals for cooperating or his pleasure at people for not cooperating. We at Lawfare, um, so me and Susan Hennessy, wrote uh, a little piece about it, as did a, a merry band. We, we, we will link this in the show notes. A number of people, including Sarah Grant and Benjamin Wittes. And the really important thing to keep in mind here is the role of corrupt intent 
in obstruction of justice. And what that means is that in order to obstruct justice, you have to mean to do so. So the the classic example of this is if you walk up to someone's house and you're an insurance salesman and say, nice house you got there, shame if something happened to it, that's fine. You're selling insurance. If you are a mobster and walk up to someone's house and say that, that may be a threat. So intent really, really matters. In the case of Trump's various efforts to dissuade people from cooperating with the Mueller investigation and the associate congressional investigations, Mueller at least seemed to think that there was enough evidence of corrupt intent that there may well have been a real case to make for Trump having obstructed justice. In this case, I think it's a little fuzzier. I I went and looked up what particularly it was that Trump said that got Meadows to to turn on a dime and seize cooperation. And it seems like it was basically a a statement of displeasure with Meadows over Meadows's book, where Meadows had said that Trump tested positive for COVID before the first presidential debate with Joe Biden. And Trump sort of released an angry statement about that. I couldn't find anything else that he said. Um, but it was after that that Meadows sort of decided, OK, I'm not cooperating. So I think that's a hard case to make from a prosecutor's perspective, because you'd want to prove beyond reasonable doubt that when he was making that statement, Trump wasn't just mad or lashing out, that he was intentionally trying to keep Meadows from cooperating, especially given that it was a statement about a completely different issue, about a positive COVID test. I find that a little hard to buy. I'm not ruling out the possibility that Trump could engage in behavior that might qualify as obstruction in the future because he has been known to do so. But I don't know if I would say that this instance fits the, the requirements under the obstruction statutes. Does that sound right to you both? It's a, it's a tricky topic. I think that's right for Meadows because the sequencing and timing is off. There were other people that were more proximate. Their decision to not cooperate is more proximate to Trump basically saying the committee's illegitimate, yada, yada, right. that there's like a better correlation. So maybe Meadows is the best example. But I think what you said is 100% right. Corrupt intent's hard to prove. In, in the case like this, particularly where like Trump is relying on a legal theory, it's one that I think a lot of people are very dubious of, but hasn't been categorically disproven. I think once you see a final legal ruling on that, whether it's the D.C. Circuit decision um, that resolves some, not quite all of these issues, but like a lot of the most meaty ones, whether it stands, whether it goes to Supreme Court, it goes on bonk, we get a final decision, then it becomes a lot harder to make those sorts of assertions. But right now, like, you know, there's a colorable, I think that's as generous as I can be about it, legal argument behind some of this stuff. But behind behind the legal arguments that Meadows is making as to why he doesn't need to testify, you mean? Just yeah, that Trump, Trump yeah. has pointed to about why what the committee's doing is illegitimate. Some of them are not colorable, but enough of them are colorable uh, that, you know, I think it's, it's going to be hard to really sink your teeth into a prosecution like that, especially in the space of separation of powers and executive prerogative where DOJ treads lightly. All right. Next, we have a question for Alan from Mitchell Lebowitz, who asks, why are tweets not subject to pre-publication review for current and former government workers? This is a great question. So I think tweets are, in principle, subject to pre-publication review for current and former government workers. I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be. Pre-publication review applies to anyone who had access to classified information and wants to make information relating to that public. And tweets are public, right? And this is an interesting feature of the internet, right? This is a, a fact that when the pre-publication review standards were, were created, um, people didn't have global publishing platforms that they could use at any moment for any reason. 
and you know, it's not the the tweets that really changed it. It's probably the rise of blogging is probably the earliest example of of how suddenly you know anything anyone said online could be kind of globally public and therefore subject to pre-publication review. So I do think in principle they are subject. Now in practice they are, as far as I know. The government is not going around looking through its former employees' tweets and trying to nail them for violating pre-publication review. But that's a matter of, let's call it strategic ambiguity on the part of the government, right? You know, they, they, the, the pre-publication standards are incredibly vague and capaciously worded. I'm pretty sure they don't care about non-classified information in tweets, but it's worded broadly enough that if you did screw up and say something classified, they could nail you not just for the disclosure of classified information, but also for the failure of prepublication review. Uh, you know, a lot of it depends on how on, on how you read the meaning of related, right? So, you know, if you used to work for DOD, prepublication review applies to anything related to defense information. But I think we all have like an intuitive sense that that doesn't mean that you can never say anything about the military or foreign affairs ever again on Twitter. But to just to kind of summarize, my confused ramblings are an indication that Twitter is one of these things, among many others, that breaks the pre-publication review process. And, and I think a, a, another reason for the need to reform it to get more clarity on what does and does not fall under pre-publication review. All right. Another round robin for all of us. This was Technically not submitted. In fact, the person said, I'm not going to submit this, but they did tweet it at us. And I thought it was good enough to uh, go ahead and put into the podcast here. So this is from at Madness V's on Twitter um, in response to one of the tweets advertising this mailbag episode asked, I want to hear you, didn't ask, commanded saying, I want to hear you war game all of the USA's vulnerabilities like a red team. That would be a great episode to do all of them which I don't think we have quite the time to do for here, but why don't we each do one uh, big one or major one, and then we can at least get the job started in that direction. One of you all want to start? I'll, I'll do electrical grid. That's that's my favorite one. I, I think that there's a huge vulnerability there. We know that adversary nations have penetrated our grid to some extent. You know, To what extent is not entirely clear. But I don't think there's much doubt that if an adversary nation or even an adversary group, I don't think you even have to be a nation state actor, with sufficient determination could take out some portions of, of the electrical grid, which is bad for a, a bunch of reasons, obviously. Not only do we rely for everything on electricity, um, but also some of the large pieces of electrical grid infrastructure, some of the biggest transformers, for example, once they go down, they're very difficult to replace. So there isn't like this big stockpile of transformers around the world that we can just buy. They're huge pieces of, of equipment. So if someone really wanted to, they could cripple large parts of the US electrical grid for weeks, if not months on end. And that would lead to a level of chaos and devastation that I, I don't think we've experienced in a long time. Well, to paraphrase an American naval commander during the War of 1812, we have met the enemy and he is us. I think that the last, I don't even know how many years at this point, not even the pandemic, let's say five years, start of the Trump presidency, have shown just how incredibly divided Americans are and how difficult it is for us to mobilize as a society against any threat and how vulnerable we are to being split apart by our own political divisions and hatreds. 
I don't want to be one of those people who's running around saying, you know, Russia is going to destroy the United States with disinformation. That's emphatically not what I'm saying, but I do think it That's is. That's what a... Arbiters of Truth is for. No, stop. <laughs> That's what we're not for. Um, I mean, look, I think we all have a responsibility to be careful and measured in presenting and acknowledging what kind of danger this sort of information circulation poses. But I do think that the fact that we're, what are we at now? 800,000 Americans have died from the coronavirus. And we don't seem to be that much closer to any kind of societal consensus about the magnitude of that loss or what should be done to protect each other. So that speaks to me to a society that is deeply, deeply divided. I don't, I think the like, are we headed for a new civil war takes are frankly silly and alarmist, but I do think it speaks to a real weakness that could be exploited. Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And there are so many possibilities. And both of the ones you all mentioned would be on my high on my list as well. I am going to say here, I'm torn between two, but I'm going to give one that's a little more interesting, a little more different than the ones you guys did. I'm going to say one of our weaknesses is Congress. For the simple reason that Ouch. Yeah, Zing Congress. And I'm a big Congress defender. Like, you know, anybody who reads my stuff knows that I'm usually like in Congress's corner. We'll try not to hold that against you. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it, but we have this problem in that a lot of our solutions, particularly when you're talking about big systemic problems, whether it is pandemic response or handling disinformation or dealing with the other topic that I almost choose, which is just cybersecurity and the fact that we have an incredibly balkanized uh, kind of ecosystem of cyber products, information, you know, networks and everything that our whole economy has come to rely upon. All those require in our kind of federal system, strong kind of action from Congress to be on the strongest legal foot to be able to do stuff about them. There may be some constitutional limits on some of that. I kind of doubt it. Commerce Clause gets around most of it. Uh, but you need Congress to actually take kind of effective action. Last century, last half century, we've kind of gotten around that by giving the executive branch a bunch of power through very broad statutes. The executive branch is then kind of aggrandized even further uh, in ways that, in many ways, I think they're totally legitimate uh, with Congress's intent. But we see an aspiration to kind of roll that back a little bit. And it puts us in this tricky position where Congress is not a fast acting body, almost by design. And then it has, through tradition, through its own rules, made itself an even slower acting body, very deliberative, and one that doesn't deal with our current political bifurcation very well. That just feeds into the, all of those internal slowing mechanisms, makes them even slower, makes the threshold for any sort of meaningful action really high. It just makes it really hard to really address meaningful collective action problems. We've seen that time and time again the last few years. You would think an economic stimulus bill in response to coronavirus would be a very easy thing to secure or remote rules when there's a global pandemic going around. Part of that's about the underlying issues, but part of the reason you've seen trouble, particularly in the Senate around some of this stuff, is because they are too bound up in their own rules. It's not just a filibuster. It goes beyond that. It's also about the lack of kind of institutional interests uh, in Congress and the degree that's declined in contrast with partisan interests, which have increased. So that that's one area where I think there's a real in weakness there, particularly compared to foreign states that have either parliamentary systems or authoritarian systems where you just don't have to deal with those sorts of issues. So our next question is from Nick Hayen, and it kind of relates to this last one about red teaming vulnerabilities. So Nick writes, for your mailbag episode, I was wondering if the team could provide their takes on the likelihood of some type of incident involving nuclear weapons occurring within the next century. 
I understand that mutually assured destruction has been a reliable deterrent against total nuclear war for the past 70 years, but what about limited use cases? For example, in a hypothetical naval dispute over Taiwan, one could imagine a scenario where a weapon is detonated offshore to disable a fleet rather than an entire city. So Scott, what do you start us off? What do you think? This is a really tricky one. You know, I I am always one who hesitates to take, you know, 20th century historical trends and extend them forever and say this is always something that will it will always operate this way. I do think though there is a certain equilibrium among the distribution of ma- of nuclear power particularly among the major powers that I think leads to a degree of hesitance to actually use sorts of weapons by the United States, China and Russia essentially and you know European powers, UK stuff like that. You know, I do think there might very well might be an issue about, you know, nuclear material or weapons causing, you know, potential leaks, malfunctioning, other issues like that, in part because like the lifespan of these weapons have extended, they're in the hands of countries that don't always maintain them or you know, secure them adequately. You know, you could see dirty bomb scenarios, all sorts of stuff that we've been kind of playing out all through the 1990s and into the post 9-11 era about these kind of smaller scale nuclear accidents. But in terms of consciously deploying a nuclear weapon of the current scale, I find that unlikely. Worth noting, the Trump administration did back the development of tactical nuclear weapons, which are nuclear weapons that operate at a smaller scale, of which there has been discussion of doing, which is essentially an effort to make a nuclear weapon that you can deploy without necessarily triggering the reciprocal expectation of this like large-scale nuclear response. I still think there's a psychological element there that would prove as a barrier to using those weapons and the concerns about how it would be perceived by those other major powers that would be a major barrier beyond conventional weapons of similar capacity. But I, you know, as you get more tactical weapons out there and they become a seem more real, that's when I think it becomes more likely you see a scenario like that. And frankly, that's where escalation scenarios become less more, more plausible in my mind, because you no longer have that bright line between nuclear and non-nuclear. All of a sudden it's just different shades of gray and nuclear and escalatory cycles become much more plausible, even where no party's consciously escalating. Um, so that's what would make me more concerned. That and the kind of like unintentional bad management of nuclear weapons and nuclear materials sorts of scenarios, not necessarily like states hurling massive nuclear weapons at each other. Does that sound right to you guys? It sounds right to me when it comes to the large states, right? I'm not I'm not particularly concerned that Russia, China, the United States will get into a profound nuclear exchange. I, I But I, I would not rule out, I mean, I don't know, I don't even know how I think of the probability, but I think it is very plausible that in the next 70 years or 100 years or whatever, we could have a use of nuclear weapons either by smaller states, either because they're, you know, like a rogue state like North Korea acting for some reason, or you could imagine a conflict between Pakistan and India. You could imagine a conflict between um, Israel and Iran, you know, escalating to the point where one side or the other really believes that there's some existential risk or things just get out of control. Certainly, I think that that there's no reason to to rule out the use of you know the acquisition of nuclear weapons by a terrorist group. That could absolutely happen. I, I mean, I think if it happens, it will be probably a relatively, I mean, <laughs> relatively in quotes, small nuclear weapon, right? Which will kill tens of thousands of people, let's say, and will be a, a world historical catastrophe that I think will get everyone to re-engage in serious non-proliferation. So I, I think the the chance of a one-off event happening is not particularly low, but I do think that it does not represent an existential threat to civilization in the way that you could more plausibly argue it did at the height of the Cold War. 
I will say, I take your point about those kind of medium-sized state conflicts. I agree. I think there's a higher risk factor there. But it's notable. There's like this kind of regional equilibrium that's emerged in kind of most of those scenarios, with the exception being Iran and Israel, where Israel will use conventional weapons to stop Iran from developing a substantial nuclear weapons capability, I strongly suspect. So so that's the reason I kind of discount those. But it's a fair point. I agree. I think there's a much higher risk factor there. And who knows? 70 years is a long time, man. I think we were 70 years ago. I think we are now. It seems, you know... It's not that long in the human history, but I'll, the pace at which things change now, it could be a whole different world at that point. All right. Another question here from David Handy. Quint, I'm going to direct this one towards you. I am curious about your thoughts on the January 6th committee's non-Trump-related investigative work. What are they looking at besides what Trump was or wasn't doing that day? And do you think it'll make a difference? What about public perceptions of the committee's legitimacy? Do you think it's a problem that the Senate doesn't have a companion body looking into these matters? That's kind of two questions. Dave, you stuck one by me. Good job. But Quinta, I'll I'll throw those both in your direction. First off, I think it's important to understand that the Senate actually does have ongoing investigations um, in this vein. They just don't have it consolidated under a select committee. I believe there's ongoing investigations by, at the very least, the Senate Judiciary Committee and the Senate Rules and Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committees. Rules and Hiskak put out a report about uh, response to the riot from, I think, DOD, DOJ, I want to say DHS, and a number of other agencies. Um, Earlier this spring, Molly Reynolds and I wrote about it on Lawfare. And there was also a report put out by the Senate Judiciary Committee about what was going on inside the Justice Department in the run-up to January 6th and on the day itself. I believe uh, those three committees are continuing to investigate. I think there may also be investigations by other committees, although I am less sure of that. The dynamics are a little bit different in the Senate because obviously there are minority senators on those committees and perhaps that might shape you know, what they want to look at or how they want to go about those inquiries. But so far... I've been pretty impressed by the quality of the work product that they've put forward, and I didn't see any evidence that it had been kind of diluted over much. So when it comes to the January 6th committee, they're running down really a number of threads. I feel like every news story I read about the different investigative angles, it lists a different amount of (laughs) threads that they're pulling on. So obviously, as you note, uh, they're looking into what Trump did in the days before January 6th and on the day itself. That includes kind of a bunch of sub-threads. So what the White House was planning, how involved it was in the planning of the rallies. It seems like uh, per a recent New York Times story that they're also looking into possible financial wrongdoing by the Trump campaign. I'm a little less familiar with what that might look like. But there are a bunch of other threads, too. So I think they're investigating the rallies uh, that were planned before the riot itself, which may or may not have had any connection to Trump. And they're also, we know, looking into government failures ahead of the riot. And what I mean by that is the failure of a wide swath of government agencies. I've talked ad nauseum about the FBI, but of course there are plenty of other ones who really failed to anticipate what was going to happen on January 6th and then respond adequately and with adequate speed when it did happen. Molly has also pointed to the Capitol Police as an example of an agency that was really sort of caught with its pants down and and needs a, a lot of reform to 
get it in in fighting shape to prevent something like this from happening again. So I think that those sort of institutional questions are maybe a little less headline grabbing, a little less sexy than, you know, what did Trump know and when did he know it? But they're really important because a lot, if you read the reports about what happened on January 6th, some of it is, you know, the big things that went wrong, that Trump told people to march on the Capitol, that he then didn't stop them. But there are also just a million little things, you know, for want of a nail, right? Where the Capitol Police Board, for example, couldn't figure out what the procedure was to call for assistance from the National Guard. Um, there's actually legislation that I believe was just signed by President Biden that will make that process easier. So identifying those points of failure and suggesting ways for those institutions and pushing them to improve so that in the event of a, another attack or more extremist activity, we'll be more ready for it, I think is really, really important. And I do hope that the committee at least pays uh, some focus to it in whatever kind of final work product it puts out. Can I ask you, Hutu, though? I want to yeah. get back to the last point that he gets at about this legitimacy question, because we, we all know the original draft mechanism for investigating January 6th was a commission to investigate that was going to be bilateral. I mean, that was through legislation, you know, through both the House and Senate that failed in the Senate, which led to the creation of the committee. I don't remember if there's a debate over creating a separate Senate committee. My guess is after they, the commission failed, there was no appetite to pretending like they were going to get the votes. So, so the, the commission, it was going to be joint. So it was going to be legislation that was passed by the House and the Senate, then sent to Biden and creating right, an independent right, right. entity. Well, I couldn't remember after it failed whether there was some independent effort to try and get the Senate to do some oh, sort of no, parallel sorry, committee. Sorry. I don't I don't think there was. I had a new I had a newborn at the time, so I, I was a little fussy on all the details. But like, what is the legitimacy deficit? Like, and how has the committee repaired it or has it failed to repair that in both the lack of bicameralness and of course then the committee faced this real challenge about getting Republican participation outside of, you know, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. So um, how have they tackled that? How effective have they been in doing that? Um, and what have they done to try and, try and bridge that legitimacy gap? I think the question is really legitimate to whom. And I think that they've done a pretty good job in dealing with this problem. And so what I mean by that is I, I wrote a piece uh, shortly after I think the, the House established the select committee for lawfare, arguing that this idea of kind of a 9-11 type commission that was going to be bipartisan, it was going to have independent experts and everyone was going to be able to get behind their findings was just a total pipe dream, that there was absolutely no way you're going to be able to have that kind of public consensus around an investigative body when a significant portion of the country and a significant portion of members of Congress refuse to admit either that the attack happened or that if it did happen, that it shouldn't have happened. And so in a weird way, the select committee, I think, had a kind of advantage or has an advantage in that they don't have Republican members who are sort of uh, healing to President Trump. They have two never Trump Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And that kind of allows them to speak with one voice and pursue their investigation aggressively without having to worry so much about ruffling the feathers of Republican members on that committee or of members of the public who, frankly, they weren't going to be able to convince anyway. You know, I think we saw a lot of soft peddling in the Trump years of various entities who were sort of trying to uh, soften their criticisms of Trump to make them maximally appealing 
to an audience that was never going to find them appealing anyway. And so they've really just been going ahead full bore and saying, this is what we're here for. This is what we're doing. We see ourselves as defending democracy and we're just going to go for it. And so in that sense, I I think, you know, they've been doing a pretty good job. Um, they, they've been dealt a really rough hand. But I think that if we divorce our expectation that truth will necessarily come with or necessarily requires to be effective, broad public acceptance, I think that they're doing really well. You know, they're going to put out a report. A lot of people are going to say that it's garbage. Um, and that doesn't matter because they're going to be able or it does matter, but it doesn't necessarily mean that their work isn't valuable because they're going to be able to set out a definitive record. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right. Next question for Alan is from David Williams, who is asking about classification, overclassification in the intelligence community and transparency. Um, And he wants to know, what prospects do you see for meaningful reform that would be sticky rather than at the whim of any sitting administration? Can one conceive of a test case that would cause the court to narrow discretion over classification granted to the executive? Is there any hope in Congress for more statutory oversight slash transparency, the inspector general offices, or more cover for whistleblowers? So this is a big problem, the issue of overclassification. I am very skeptical that the courts have a meaningful role to play in policing all but the most egregious abuses of the classification system. So, you know, where the courts have talked about classification it's mostly been in the context of the First Amendment, and in particular, whether or not the government can enjoin an individual or an entity like a newspaper from disclosing classified information. And this is most famous example of this is the Pentagon Papers and the New York Times, and the Washington Post's publication of that, despite it containing gobs of classified information and the Supreme Court telling the government that it could not enjoin those newspapers from, from doing so. One can also imagine if the government were to try to classify something that really had nothing to do with national security and really infringed on someone's ability to exercise their First Amendment rights in a core way, which is to say related to, let's say, core political speech, you could imagine the court nibbling around the edges there. But as a general matter, the court has said that the president, from a judicial perspective, has essentially effectively an unreviewable discretion in what 
to identify as national security information that is subject to classification. I don't think there's any reason to think that the current Supreme Court wants to get involved in this issue. Uh, and so I don't think there's much prospect for limitations from the court. Where I do think you could imagine limitations is from Congress. If Congress really wanted to limit the scope of classification, they could do so. I think it'd be hard to impose a substantive limitation because you kind of, I mean, the issue with classified information is it's so discretionary as to what the executive branch thinks could harm national security that I'm not sure there's any way for Congress to kind of ex ante delineate the categories of classified information in such a way that would meaningfully solve the clover classification problem. But Congress could, for example, mandate frequent and rigorous reviews of classification information. Congress could create institutions within executive branch agencies, kind of on the model of the inspector general's um, offices that would have probably not independent authority to declassify, but could propose declassification, could write reports to Congress. Um, you know, there, there probably is some constitutional limit to Congress's control over classification. Whenever Congress seizes itself of this issue, there's always some murmuring from the White House, no matter who's in the White House, that the president has this kind of residual preclusive commander in chief power and that Congress has to be careful in its classification uh, reform uh, not to um, interfere with that. But I do think if the question is, you know, what is the most plausible mechanism for real long term declassification and classification reform? It's probably Congress setting up some quasi independent executive branch structures to periodically and routinely require declassification. Short of that, the only other thing that I could probably imagine is to make getting a classified clearance much, much harder. So, you know, it's not easy to get a classified clearance, um, you know, especially top secret and above and things like that. But it's certainly possible and millions of people have it. And when millions of people have classified information clearance, that creates an incentive to classify everything because you can classify things and still things can function. If, if you made it really, really hard to get clearance, that would actually create a real disincentive to classify things because it would be a real pain to do so. So, you know, absent that, those two things, I, I don't see any way to really reverse the trend towards overclassification. But I don't know, Scott, what do you, what do you think? I mean, you've, you've, you've lived in this world as well. Yeah, you know, I, I take a slightly different view of like the legal structure here. Like our classification system is almost entirely a construct of Congress uh, with with the executive branch execute a lot of delegated authority, right? Like the executive branch authority that they claim is much more about protecting information actually from disclosure to Congress, right? It's this is the kind of like Washington refusing to hand over treaty negotiated documents for the Jay Treaty, I think it was, to Congress upon inquiry. And like that's the root of the idea that the executive branch has control over this, they're saying like, Congress, you can't compel us to start giving this away. But if Congress were to say, guess what? There's no longer any criminal penalties for revealing classified information. There's nothing the executive branch could do about that, right? They could maybe fire people uh, and they could limit access to the information and install like whatever penalties with whatever authority Congress gives them. But Congress has a lot stronger you know, pen in this area than I think people give it credit for. But Congress is often very conscious and sometimes even like overly... Uh, skeptical of its own capacity uh, and its own limits on its own capacity to make judgments like this. And so that's why they delegate so much of power to the executive branch in a lot of policy areas, particularly when they touch on foreign affairs, national security. And I think classification is a reflection of that. All around, I say I would say, like, I think you could see Congress pushing back on things like, and we've already seen it happen with 
FOIA with that declassification necessarily, but FOIA combined with mandatory declassification after 25 years, except for like select matters. Part of the problem you have with this is just like the sheer volume of material. And, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, a lot of work I've done in classified space, like I get why it's classified. Like you actually want some protections for this stuff. So I'm not as skeptical about it as some. I think the problem you run into is when you see that system clearly being abused. So I think the IG proposal, investigatory proposal, is really where you need to start see pushback and then see Congress potentially saying, look, if we don't address this executive branch through regs, we can address it through statute. And to have that kind of back and forth that's led to the formation of a lot of our foundational regulatory regimes, regulatory statutory intersection kind of regimes in, in the federal government. Um, I just don't know if the executive branch, or pardon me, if Congress has been a, an adequately engaged on that. Like you would need to find a committee that makes it its business to do that. Um, and I'm not sure one does. I'm actually also, frankly, not sure. Obviously, you know, intelligence committees have kind of like a dominant role in classification, but I don't know if they have like exclusive jurisdiction. So maybe you would want one jurisdiction in the Congress to actually have like that dominant role overseeing overall classification policy. But again, it's just, but it's a real question of what, how much priority Congress makes it, I think. So I, do, I agree with you on that front, at least. All right. So our next question is from longtime devoted listener, Auntie Rokonen. Great to hear from you always, Auntie. This is for Scott. What effects, if any, do you think Finland acquiring F-35s, the new warplane, F-35s from the USA has on the security situation locally and more broadly, i.e. with respect to NATO's northern flank in Norway, the Baltic states, vis-a-vis Russia? It's a good question, and it really feeds into this uh, mixed perspectives that we see playing out in the dialogue between Russia and the United States and Western Europe over uh, Ukraine, right? Like, I think a lot of states would say, look, this is Finland exercising its own national sovereign rights to self-defense, entering in a deal with the United States over an open bidding process with a bunch of other countries uh, that they chose to enter this relationship. Uh, and it's worth noting, F-35 relationships create like a long-standing security relationship. It's not a one-time purchase. There's a long tail of equipment, support, and services that come with that that often last for the life of the jet, which is decades, you know, a good a good substantial chunk of time if they don't get shot down. If Finland's not a member of NATO, um, but has a close relationship with a lot of NATO members, is part of that kind of universe of states that are NATO adjacent, um, frequent NATO partners, and for obvious reasons, because Russia's right there, uh, has always had kind of a, a presence, obviously, historically and still presently, and Finland has common security interests with NATO, which they has a right to pursue. Other people will say, well, look at this from Russia's perspective. Russia is sees itself as being surrounded increasingly by military presences, and particularly Western and U.S.-backed military presences all around its periphery. And that's the reason why it's pushing out uh, and wanting to assert itself more aggressively and particularly trying to leverage the threat of that aggression to get the NATO and Western European and America to states in America to pull back and no longer expand further east, limit their sort of presence there. Now, that all assumes that Russia has a right to some sort of sphere of influence, uh, this idea that somehow allowing these states to exercise their sovereign rights to self-defense, which we all are supposed to recognize they have under the UN Charter, threatens Russia, even though certainly NATO, a lot of these perks are primarily self-defense. F-35 purchase is not necessarily strictly self-defense, but let's be honest, Finland's not going to invade Russia anytime soon, uh, no matter how many F-35s they have. Maybe they have all the F-35s, but until they get there, it's not going to happen. So I, 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 I view that narrative a little skeptically, right? I think it's much more about Russia asserting a view of its, its proper role in the world and trying to leverage reality to get that role, which is a major power with a sphere of influence that it is allowed to dictate the affairs of weaker states, regardless of their sovereign desire. 
that said, this feeds into that dialogue, and this is going to be one more piece of kindling on the fire uh, that's going to be the big issue, frankly, that is going to eat up our late winter, early spring, which is this conflict, potentially brewing conflict over Ukraine and efforts to somehow get an off-ramp that all the parties will be on board with so it doesn't turn into an open-armed conflict. Hopefully. <laughs> Quinta and my ignorance of foreign relations can never be underestimated. I'm just like, yeah, man, that sounds about right. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, warplanes. Pew, 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 pew. I read one Ken Waltz book in 1977, and that's all I've ever needed. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Written in 1977. I was not alive in 1977. There's, there's realism, constructivism, and the, the other is. And the other one. Yeah, <laughs> Whatever yeah. that other one is. Liberal hoo-ha. Liberal, yeah. um, <laughs> The uh, all right, David in California writes to all of us. I am curious for any. Oh, I got to use my podcast voice for this question. Excuse me. Let me try this again. I'm curious for any personal perspective. <laughs> that's your. That's not no. That's your one. You're confusing your podcast voice with your one nine hundred voice. Try oh, again, sorry. Scott. That's terrible. I'm curious for any personal perspective from the podcast personalities on voice lessons, or perhaps on elocution exercises, a type useful for speech or debate prep. And the reference is 20 Dwarves is one I'm not familiar with. Um, I don't know what the 20 Dwarves one is. I don't know if you guys have ever done this. I have, if you can tell, can't tell from the fact that I'm a complete mushmouth and don't enunciate my words. Like I uh, do not do any of these things. I probably should. I'm a little more conscious about how fast I talk because I talk very fast when I get excited. And so I try and slow down half successfully. Um, I actually had a speech impediment of sorts for a long time. And so I've always have, dis- I think very consciously when I talk an audience because I have to or else my words get kind of jumbled. But uh, I'd be curious if you guys have any thoughts on this because I, I, this is something I've thought about pursuing. My sister-in-law is a speech pathologist. I was like, maybe she can give me some good exercises about how to improve this. And I've never done it. But, you know, podcasting is a wave of the future, man. So we're riding it. Um, so uh, what do you guys, have you guys thought about this? Yeah, I, I thought a decent amount about this. I, I also had a bit of a speech impediment. I used to stutter quite a bit and, and that fortunately went away with, with age, but it, it comes back sometimes. I, I think what's important is to avoid either extreme of how to think about speech quality. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, it, it, I think it used to be that there was one way of speaking, right? There was one appropriate tone and it was often coded in various gender and racial and socioeconomic ways, right? Both in you know, in, in the UK, quote unquote, BBC English, but also in the US. And I think over the last several decades, that has changed for very much the better, right? There are many voices, there are many tones, there are many styles of speaking, and it is great that we have expanded that. At the same time, I think it's important not to over-rotate and say, therefore, anyone without any preparation can speak perfectly all the time, right? Um, there is room for making sure that whatever the kind of sound of your instrument is, you're still doing the fundamentals of speaking slowly enough that, you know, you're thinking about your cadence and how understandable it is that, you know, you're enunciating your words to the extent that that's necessary for understanding. And we can have a a diverse array of voices, but still have good vocal quality. And I'm not sure I do that very well myself, though I do try. I think the single most useful thing one can do is just to listen to one's own voice in recordings. Um, it's very unpleasant, but you have to do it for a number of reasons. I mean, first, unless you listen to yourself, you don't know what you sound like, right? We sound very different when we, you know, from the third person than from the first person because of various psychological and like acoustical effects. 
So if you want to improve how you sound, you have to listen to how you sound and you have to record yourself and listen back to it. In addition, it's important to listen to yourself because if you listen to yourself enough, your voice will stop weirding you out. It's very natural for your voice for to weird you out when you first hear it. So if you listen to yourself enough, then you can learn to enjoy your voice and you kind of get the best of both worlds. You both enjoy your voice or come to terms with your voice and the unique instrument that it is. Um, and you should celebrate that uniqueness. And also you have enough distance from it that you can realize that, you know, you talk too quickly, you talk too slowly. There are certain th ways in which you swallow your words or don't enunciate or certain vocal tics. You know, there, I, I have a lot of filler words uh, that I've noticed in my speech that I try to work on by speaking a little more slowly, kind of giving my brain enough time to catch up with my mouth, uh, as as it were. But that's that's my suggestion. I think if you just listen to yourself enough, you will naturally identify and deal with whatever are the biggest impediments to you sounding at your best, which again, I think will be different for every person because we all sound different and that's a good thing. Wow, that was really inspirational. I feel like my tip is pretty garbage next to that. I was just going to say speak more slowly, <laughs> um, which I actually think is important. That I seriously. Specifically, you, Alan and Scott, speak more, <laughs> no, no, speak no. more that, slowly. That is, that is genuinely also the less. advice. Just speak less. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> um, that is the advice that I've given to people who are doing interviews on, on radio or television or something like that for the first time. I think it is it is absolutely true that we speak much more quickly in conversation than we do on various forms of media. And you can generally benefit from just trying to slow yourself down a notch. I don't mean that you have to, you know, sound like a beluga whale. And I also don't. Though that would down. be awesome. It would be awesome. I also don't take this advice a hundred percent of the time as, as I'm sure you have noticed, but yeah, just, just chill, slow down, take it slow. It's all what good. would a beluga whale Beluga. That was kind of what I had in mind. I guess maybe it's a blue whale. I don't know. Whatever whale. Don't sound like a whale. We don't need that. Or sound like a whale. If you're a whale, sound like a whale. Yeah. More whales on public radio. Yes. Yes. Hashtag more I whales. I do love whale sounds. I could get on board with that. All right. Well, we have time for one last question before we get to object lessons. But I think this is a good one for the season. This is from Adam who asked, which holiday movie, by whatever definition you prefer, is most relevant to the current state of international relations? I can try. Um, I, I'm going to go with Independence Day, which is a holiday movie. It's a July 4th. That is 100% a holiday movie. He expressly delegates authority to define holiday movie to you. So you're right. <laughs> it is 100% well a holiday movie. And I do think it captures the need of all of us in the global community to come together and fight invaders, whether they are from space or from the microscopic virus realm. This is a little strained, but mostly I'll just plug Independence Day whenever I can. I, I think that it is a perfect movie. Bold. I will say I went in a completely different direction. My strained suggestion is the movie Christmas in Connecticut, it is a 1945 movie with Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, it is in black and white. It is delightful. The plot of the movie is that she is a young single gal in New York City who is writing a popular column about how to be a housewife while pretending that she is a housewife in Connecticut. And uh, because of 
movie reasons, she ends up needing to actually pretend to be a housewife in Connecticut over Christmas, but she doesn't know how to do anything, including cook or take care of a baby. So the reason I suggest this is, first off, it is just a delightful movie and more people should be fans of Barbara Stanwyck. But second, because I feel like the message with last few years is that everybody is just faking it all of the time. Nobody knows what the hell is going on. We're all just stumbling through pretending that the experts have it under control or that experts even exist. So that is my holiday movie suggestion. It's a good holiday movie. I like that movie. Um, it's good. But I will say, yeah, I enjoy it. Uh, I haven't seen it in a couple of years. I haven't put that on my list for this year. Well, I will say defining holiday movie in the more conventional sense by the uh, modern, typical dictionary usage of the terms, I will go with the classic, the Sinbad classic, Jingle All the Way, which I think is essentially one big allegory for Reinhold Niebuhr's moral man and immoral society. Which go on. Essentially, that, that's actually, that was Sinbad's inspiration. People don't know that. <laughs> That's exactly that's exactly what Sinbad was going for. I'm not surprised to hear that. You know, the father of uh, Christian realism, um, Reinhold Niebuhr, one of my faves, Reinhold forever. But really, uh, you know, he posits this idea that when we are put in social structures, essentially, and we encounter conditions of scarcity, we can, by virtue of our own set of expectations be driven to engage in behavior that we perceive as moral because it is on behalf of our social structure, but is in fact quite immoral from an outside perspective, driven to uh, potentially horrible acts to each other in pursuit of a goal that we perceive as being zero sum when in fact it may not be and may not even really be with the people who form that society is necessarily always actually want in the end. Uh, right? Niebuhr doesn't get into that last part quite as much, but Jingle All the Way very much does. So I think it kind of captures a lot of the competition, the international system that is one of its defining traits, you know, from a uh, state of nature to this day. Uh, and I'll stand by that. I think you should. Or the sequel with Larry the Cable Guy also works. I think you should pull a Jim Comey and have as, uh, a, as your Twitter handle, Sinbad Niebuhr. Or Reinhold Sinbad. <laughs> For the holidays. Your holiday handle. I like that. I like that. I might I might do that. We'll see. Yeah, I need to I need more Nibor uh, themed sort of like social media. I think needs to get out there a little bit. I feel like Jim really got the jump on that unfairly. Well, guys, we have gotten a number of other questions. Uh, we apologies. We weren't able to get to all of them. Some of them were very much in areas that we just did not have expertise in. Some of these were too, but some of those were really outside of our lane. And so we thought maybe best channeled to other directions. We're going to try and send them to colleagues and other folks who might be able to get you some answers uh, offline. But for the purpose of this episode, it is now time to go to our other tradition, object lessons. And I will share our first listener submitted object lesson. This is from... A gentleman who I forgot, or lady, who I forgot to, to confirm whether or not they're okay with me saying their name. So I will refer to them by the initials of TM, who recommends the podcast series Fat Leonard, which is about a, uh, well, a heavyset gentleman, apparently, <laughs> who is engaged in corrupting the Seventh Fleet. And I'm familiar with this story. This is a, a really like interesting podcast. I've had actually had recommended me by a lot of people about this corruption scheme that operated around the Seventh Fleet. Uh, in East Asia, I think, but East and Southeast Asia, I could be wrong. I think that's right. And a lot of actually pretty troubling embedded longstanding corrupt practices and practices that are very corrupt adjacent, corrupt facilita corruption facilitating in the social culture of the Seventh Fleet uh, and the United States Navy more broadly. And the listener, TM, points out that 
asks whether it, it makes an interesting critique of the kind of noble warrior view we often ascribe to the military. Um, I haven't listened to the podcast yet, uh, but I actually am putting it on my short list. I've had a few people recommend it to me. So thank you, TM. And um, maybe uh, all of us can listen to the new year and we can find a time to chat about it. All right. Our next submitted object lesson is from Nick Hayen. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Uh, who recommends uh, his own American foreign policy podcast, which is called The Orientalist Express, uh, which is styled on the original rational security. So the message I'm getting, Nick, is that I think we have some competition. Exactly. I will say it's also a blog. I poked around a little bit and they had some insightful things in there. So people should check it out, orientalistexpress.com. Uh, our next object lesson is from Lisa Holden, uh, and she suggests a book as an object lesson. Always appreciate those. It's called Shorting the Grid, and it's by Meredith Angwin, uh, who is, I quote Lisa here, brilliant and who also happens to be a longtime friend of my father's. Not my father's, Lisa's father. So thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Meredith, for writing the book. Thank you, Lisa's father, for having great uh, taste in friends. I, I, I looked the book up earlier today, and it actually is what it's all about, the electrical grid and potential risks therein. And it, it is what uh, got me thinking about it. And uh, that's why for the red team question, that's what I answered. So one can never learn too much about the electrical grid. So I, for one, look forward to reading this book at some point. All right. Next, we have a submission from Jason, who points us to what he refers to as a rather interesting platformer game for iOS developed by RT. Uh, that is Russia Today, or the, the network formerly known as Russia Today. It is a game that is called Free Assange, or Make Assange Free. I'm not sure how to read this, but it seems like the game is you are freeing Assange. And interestingly, uh, I note on the Apple App Store page, it says that RT has not provided details about its privacy practices and handling of data to Apple. So you might want to be careful about downloading this to your phone. Just a, just a little suggestion out there. I would also note, you are not only freeing Assange, you are literally breaking out of him out of a, the specific British prison in which he is being <laughs> held. Would you think the UK government might object to that? <laughs> but apparently not Everything is to the content Apple moderation, store. baby. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, I have a little bit of an object lesson update courtesy of Rachel uh, from Twitter who reached out to me after our episode two weeks ago where I endorsed the rejuvenated, reassembled version of my favorite holiday movie, The Muppet Christmas Carol, with uh, one of the classic song sequences reincorporated into it that had been lost several years earlier. But she messaged me, regrettably, to tell me that that sequence, When Love Is Gone, actually isn't back in the movie because I, like an idiot, trusted the MSM, meaning the Muppet Stream Media. Sheeple. Scott, you sheeple. Adequately cover what was happening. This but is evidently, a worthy of its own investigative podcast series. I am on it. And uh, Rachel was kind of reached out to people at Muppet History at Twitter who are uh, hopefully looking into this as well. Uh, they basically said Disney may have used a little bit more uh, generous wording about what they intended to do with this recovered clip. Evidently, you can only see it in the extras files on Disney Plus, which is new, but you cannot see it and you're incorporated back into the film, which is. Such a waste because it's a lovely, strong sequence and just brings the whole movie together better. So Disney, do better. Disney Plus, do better. Put that film back together and put it online. Please get on it for next season because we all deserve to see that movie in its original form. 
And thank you, Rachel, for bringing it to my attention. I have never seen the Muppet Christmas movie, but I have to say I have become a passionate advocate for the reintroduction of this scene just based on Scott's amazing work on this. As should we all. Thank you, Scott. So the next object lesson is from E.B., those are the initials provided. Um, so EB points out that uh, some episodes ago, Quinta was recommending a pie dough recipe that's easy and won't drive you crazy. And EB wanted to add that bourbon makes everything better. True. That is true. And especially pie dough. The reason that pie doughs are supposed to be made with so little water, which creates a frustratingly dry dough, uh, is because water activates the gluten in the flour too much for the flaky texture that we are all looking for in a pie crust. Uh, but alcohol doesn't have as much of an effect on gluten. So replacing about half the water in the recipe with cold vodka or bourbon means you can add a bit more if your dough is too dry to work with and it won't compromise texture. So I, I have actually tried this technique before using vodka and it works really well. Um, I think it is the kind of classic approach recommended by America's test kitchen. I've never tried it with bourbon. That sounds interesting. Um, I also wonder if this would be good with rum. I might. I think rum might actually be a really nice version because you get both the alcohol content you get the kind of vanilla notes of the aged spirit and get a little sugar in the rum, which will probably help with browning. So yeah, I think I might try this. Uh, I might try this with rum next time I make a flaky uh, pie crust. I'm intrigued. I also have tried it with, with vodka, which I have to say I did not like as much as just using water, but each to their own. But the idea of, of bourbon or even rum is just opens up new horizons. I will say I've done some pie crust experimenting this holiday season, uh, and I have gone back after playing with shortening crusts and even oil crusts in the past. I have gone back to a full butter crust. All butter, baby. Uh, it's the way to go. Really, it really butter. is the way to do it. And it's actually a similar principle because it's a higher fat content, lower water content in butter. Supposedly, if you can get like real like European style, super fatty from the farm butter, that's Palugra. like the real stuff you want to use. Amazing. But you have to, it is hard to work with. And I wonder if maybe like using a little just to, to lighten it up would help you at least get you into the i always find with a pie plate mine's kind of crack and become a real hassle uh and i don't want to add too much water to get it too moist but maybe this is a good way to get a little more malleable without having to warm it up um which i think risks that flakiness so worth a try i'm going to experiment with this a little bit you should write to cooks illustrated yeah in my experience i have gotten away with using a little more water and therefore making the dough easier to work with if i keep everything else super super cold so if i cube the butter yeah put that in the freezer and even freeze the flour which sounds Really excessive. Ooh. But even if you just freeze the I was going to say, uh, yeah. put put ice cubes in the water and put it in the fridge. That so also that super, also super works. cold water. I did you that you can bump up the moisture content to keep everything very cold. All right. Good to know. Well, we'll see. We'll experiment. We'll report back next next holiday season. So for, for our next object lesson, we have another uh, food-related submission, which is from Kirby and Liza. And this one is for Alan. And they say that they are eternally grateful, high praise, for Alan's October 27th object lesson that we will hold closely for eternity. This, I can't pronounce this. Spetzel? 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 I think it's Spetzel. Spetz, I think it, no, I think Spetzel. it's Spetzla, actually. Spetz. I think Because I think I said Spetzel, Spetzla? and then a bunch okay. of people at tweeted at me that it's, it's, it's okay. Spetzla. <laughs> but I'm sure I'm also mispro- – I'm still mispronouncing it, I'm sure. They're eternally grateful for the Spetzla maker. They have used it three times already, impressed many, and can't wait for next time. Two months from now, it will probably be underneath my pillow when not in use. That is a hell of an endorsement. 
do wash it first because they get quite dirty. <laughs> so I am so delighted. Kirby and, and Liza, you are so welcome. Um, I've been using the Spätzle maker a lot and I have some, some additional kind of pro tips. So I like my Spätzle on the uh, very chewy side and I also like them kind of more noodly rather than dumpling-like. And so what I have found to do that is if you use bread flour, which is a little bit higher uh, gluten, that'll make it chewier. If you make the, the batter like two hours in advance and stash it in the fridge, that'll give it time to develop more gluten. And then I found if you use less water or less liquid, you usually use milk. If you make the dough kind of drier than you think it should be, kind of even drier than thick pancake batter, that will cause it to flow more slowly through the Spätzle maker. Uh, and you will get more of a noodley texture. So those are my my pro tips for advanced Spätzle enthusiasts. I will say, as a sneak preview of Radsec 2022, I have a unitasker on my Christmas list that I'm extremely excited about. It is more absurd, and I am adamantly anti-unitasker, but this is one of those unitasks that I find so, so horrible, and I hate so much, and keep me from one of my favorite foods. Uh, I'm not going to say what it is, so keep listening. What a tease. The, holidays. the anticipation. I'm really excited. If it works well, I'll share. If it doesn't work, I'll also share. It's just, so I don't, I don't keep it a secret, uh, but I'm really excited if this works out. And our last object lesson comes from Tim Buckner. And a bit of context for this, folks who are listening may remember that we talked about doing a mailbag episode early after we started Ratsack 2.0 before we realized, no, wait, we should hold on to this for the holiday season. But Tim was the only person who responded to my brief single cry for object lessons and submissions in that early episode. Thank you, Tim, uh, who submitted this. And I wanted to share it because I think it's still quite timely and quite nice. And he noted, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here before I get to the object, but he noted that he started listening to Rational Security 1.0, I think, initially uh, because he was upset with legislation in his home state uh, regarding same-sex marriage that he did not agree with and became more involved in civics education and the government's role at the state and national level and became more involved in listening to our podcast uh, after the 2016 election, as did many other people. And he noted that his alma mater, this is his object lesson, his alma mater, Purdue University, as of next fall or as of this fall, I'm not sure which one this is, uh, now requires a civics literacy proficiency where in which all undergrad students, no matter their major, will have to fulfill a participation uh, in some sort of event, whether it's a civic event, a podcast, or class, and pass a test. And he wanted to share his pride in his alma mater for this, and I will second that as well. I think civics education is a wildly important thing. It's becoming very evident to us that does not get enough attention, uh, and I'm glad Purdue University is taking steps in that direction. Well, with that object lesson, that brings us to the end of this very special episode and for us in Rational Security Land for the year 2021. We will see you in Rational Security 2.0, the year of Rational Security 2.0, 2022. But until then, know that Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the many articles and object lessons we discussed and books and other things you can still purchase even though it's not the holiday season anymore rational security swag at the lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits including a committed ad-free feed for this podcast or as a gift for your friends and families and loved ones also an option Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass along to your loved ones. 
Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are, once again, edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quinten Allen, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week and next year. Until then, goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.